Well, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be here. I know a lot of our ladies are coming off of a bit of a spiritual high last night from the reports I got. If you spent any time outside today, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. We had a good time to praise, and I'm about to bring the level of positivity down a little bit. We're going to talk about persecution, all right? So, of course, we've been going through the Beatitudes, and Thad's been leading us through a lot of the uh, a lot of those thoughts, and we come to the eighth beatitude today. But to set the, to set the stage, we'll kind of read through the whole thing so we get the full context. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, uh, Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain, as Moses had done before him, and he sat down, as Jewish teachers of his day usually did. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the spiritually poor, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Here we go. Blessed are the meek and gentle, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children of God. And in today's text, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Then he goes on and expounds on that one a little bit. And he says, and blessed are you, blessed are all of you, when people persecute you or denigrate you or despise you or tell lies about you on my account. But when this happens, rejoice, be glad, remember that God's prophets have been persecuted in the past and know that in heaven you have a great reward. So Jesus was speaking this in a primarily Jewish context, right? Uh, First century Judaism, just like like any culture, any society at any time, they kind of had a a cultural theology that, that, that was kind of the common understanding. Some of it was was pushed by the theologians of the day, the rabbis and teachers. Some of it was kind of uh, twisted versions of what the theologians and teachers and rabbis would say. Um, just like today, you get some things that's pushed out from the, from the teachers and some things that kind of get distorted and shared among people and, and change by the time they become part of the public consciousness. But they did have a vision of life that was generally shared. And this is an oversimplification, but I think it's, it's generally accurate. The Jews of Jesus' day, their vision for life was basically get rid of all the bad people around you, figure out what God's do's and don'ts are, and then everything's going to go well. Okay? That's kind of the, the nutshell version of what their public theology was. You kind of see a little bit of this in Psalm One, the first three verses where the psalmist says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So get all the the bad people out of your life, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So figure out the law, figure out the do's and don'ts and live according to them. Says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prosper. So if you do all of this, if you get rid of the bad people, start doing what you're supposed to do, avoid doing what you're not supposed to do, and then you're going to prosper. Everything's going to go well for you in the end. So that's what they anticipated when they embraced this, this covenant with God that the Jews had. But was that their experience? 
think if you read through the Old Testament, uh, the history of the Jews, you see that that wasn't exactly, that doesn't, doesn't exactly line up with their experience. Because they, they come into the promised land, they run all the bad people out, right? And then only kind of in hindsight down the road, when they look back on it, do they kind of realize that they weren't exactly the good guys in that whole scenario. Then they realize that all these do's and don'ts, all this law that they're trying to follow is pretty impossible to live up to, right? And then in the end, they weren't prospering very well or for very long periods of time because they got conquered by nation after nation and increasingly uh, powerful nations that would enslave them over and over and over again. So this whole paradigm that they were living under wasn't really working out for them. So then the prophets, the prophets come along and they basically say, look, you guys need a new deal. You need somebody who's going to come and bring a new arrangement, a new, a new um, vision for life for you, a new covenant for you. So they prophesy the coming of this person, and then Jesus comes, and he starts to, starts to lay out this new vision of God for humanity. And he does this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins this with the Beatitudes that we just read. Um, so when Jesus comes along and he says, this is who God's blessing he gives all these, blessed are these people. He says, this is who God's blessing. He's casting this new vision. He's setting up, if you will, a new covenant with people. So now, instead of all these external do's and don'ts, Jesus starts envisioning a world where internal change and internal values are what's important. So that gets us the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes have been called the gateway to living the Jesus life. It's, it's the gateway. It's the entry point. It's, it's kind of the bird's eye view so that you understand what life you're getting yourself into. It's not cliches of conventional wisdom. This isn't, um, this isn't a book of, of, of happy sayings or a sermon of happy sayings that are going to make everybody feel good about themselves. What it is, it's a counterintuitive reversal of values. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. to When you sit down and actually read and consider the things that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, they don't make sense to, the, to, to our worldly minds. To, when, when, we're, when we're confronted with life, they, these things, this isn't how we do things. Okay, so they're counterintuitive and they're reversals of our values. So because of that, when we walk through this gate to living the Jesus life, when we walk through it, it's an act of faith in and of itself to start this journey um, because it doesn't make sense. We're starting a journey that makes no sense to the way our minds operate. I mean, being poor in spirit, being meek, um, those things don't, aren't the things that we typically say are blessed ways of life. It's counterintuitive. So to, to, to step through this gate, to step onto this pathway of life is an act of faith in and of itself. And it takes faith to do that. And to believe that this is actually the wisdom of God that we're doing. But that's what it is. The attitudes, the gateway to living the Jesus way. And each one of them, of course, starts with the word blessed or blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. It's a word that originally had to do with sharing the life of the deities. They would use that term in their pagan world to talk about different ways that you could share in the divine life of all of these pagan deities. So, of course, when Jesus uses it, he's, he's using that word to talk about living the life of God, the one deity, right? So that's the word he uses, and he starts out by pronouncing us blessed in, in our poverty of spirit, 
right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he goes on saying, blessed are we if we're, if we're mourning, if we're meek, if, if, uh, if we hunger for justice or righteousness, mercy, purity, peacemaking. He says all of these things are blessed because those are the descriptors of the divine life. That's the life we're signing on to. The divine life, of course, is God's life. And if we want to know what God's life is, if we want a picture of that, we look at Jesus because God is like Jesus. And if we want to know what Jesus's life is, we, we read the Gospels and we look at the Beatitudes because God is like Jesus and Jesus is like the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are the way to Makarios, the way to the life of God. That's what we're studying here. Jesus, he didn't discover these Beatitudes in a, in a book of wisdom somewhere. And he's just preaching them. He, that, that's not how this, how this worked. He didn't discover them outside of himself and then repeat them in any way. He spoke out of his own being and he begins with these Beatitudes. In fact, when you get to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he, it, it tells us this. With, when, uh, with, sorry, with that, Jesus finished his teaching and the crowds were amazed by all that he had said. And verse 29 says, but Jesus taught in his own name on his own authority, not like the scribes. So Jesus, we as Christians believe Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is what God looks like. And when this teaching comes directly from his authority as God incarnate, as the Messiah, then we know that this is the life of God. So to the degree that we misunderstand the Beatitudes, to that same degree we misunderstand Jesus. And to whatever degree we misunderstand Jesus, we misunderstand God himself. So it's important. So what we've done over the past several weeks is we've gone and looked at each of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Talking about being poor in spirit, having a poverty of spirit, detachment from, from all those things that give us a sense of, of wealth or, or, or prestige or, or value, those things that we grab a hold of within our spirit to, to make us feel good about ourselves. We detach from those things. Those things are suddenly not important to us anymore because we receive our value from other, from other means. Those who realize that those things are of no, of no value then become poor in spirit and they have to be filled with the things of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then we have blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So not only are we detaching from the prestige and the values that, that we have in this world, but we're detaching from the pleasure that brings upon the sin that ultimately destroys us and brings mourning into our lives. So we're detaching from this pursuit of pleasure. And then he says, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. And of course, meekness is a word that has to do with power um, and the way you use your power. And so a question that we ask is, have I detached from my own pursuit of power, from the desire to dominate and control other people? So he starts out by, there's kind of a flow here. He starts out by, uh, by talking about all these different things that, that we're emptying ourselves of. We're detaching ourselves from different ways of thinking that are common in the world but when you detach yourself from something, when you empty something out of who you are, you're left empty. You're left hungry. You're left wanting something to fill that space. And so the next beatitude, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or it's the same word that you could use to say justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. 
So if I detach from all those things, it leaves me empty and I'm left hungry for something, but am I hungering? Am I yearning for the right things, for God's way of living, for justice? If I am, God says that he'll fill us. And then he goes through the next four Beatitudes talking about the way that the, the things that we should fill ourselves with. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. So if we replace our, our, our values and the things that used to give us worth that are, that, that are false ideals, if we replace those things with mercy and with purity and with peace, then we're on the pathway of God. So that leads Jesus to his grand finale, right? Now, back in Psalm 1, he was saying, avoid the bad people, do the things you're supposed to do, follow the law. And then his grand finale in the Psalms was, and everything you do will prosper. So I'm sure Jesus' audience here was listening to what he had to say, and they're hearing, they're hearing a lot of things that are counterintuitive, and they're almost, I picture them almost expecting, well, he's going he's gonna to bring this around at the end, and it's, there's going to be a... There's going to be a punch to what he says at the end that's going to, going to make it all make sense. And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then he gets to the last one here and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. So I imagine the faces of those who are listening when he gets to this one. How did they react? How do we react when we read this? In the comfort of our padded seats in our air-conditioned room and our society where we're free to do this without having to be in hiding as we're doing it. How do we react to that? Do we, do we dismiss it or, or minimize it as kind of a theoretical ideal that Jesus talked about? Did he really mean what he says here? I think what we realize the more we read Scripture and the more we try to live out this, these teachings is that following Jesus puts us at odds with the world around us in real tangible ways. It puts us at odds with the world around us. Please don't ever think that living the Beatitudes, that walking through this gateway to the Jesus life is, is, is the pathway to popularity and acceptance and success in the world's terms. Please don't ever think that because that's not what this is. Um, you might hear a lot of sermons saying that these are the eight steps to this or the eight steps to that way of, of success in business or whatever else. That's not what Jesus was doing here. This is, this is a teaching that will put you at odds with the world around you. But Jesus is really clear that we have to stare this one down. We can't dismiss it. We can't minimize it. We have to kind of wrap our hands around it and figure out, figure out how, how true it is. A few places where he talks about this. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, it says, The Son of Man must suffer intensely. He must be rejected by the religious establishment, the elders, the chief priests, the religious scholars. Then he will be killed, and then on the third day he will be raised. Then verse 23, Jesus says, If any of you want to walk my path, you're going to have to deny yourself. You'll have to take up your cross every day and follow me. If you try to avoid danger and risk, then you'll lose everything. If you let go of your life and risk all for my sake, then your life will be rescued, healed, made whole and full. Listen, what good does it do does it do you if you gain everything, if the whole world is in your pocket, but then your own life slips through your fingers and is lost to you? He also says in John, uh oh, I didn't click through that, did I, like I was supposed to? John 15, verse 18, if you find that the world despises you, remember that before it despised you, it first despised me. 
If you were a product of the world order, then it would love you. But you are not a product of the world because I've taken you out of it and it despises you for that very reason. Don't forget what I've spoken to you. A servant is not greater than the master. If I was mistreated, you should expect nothing less. If they accepted what I have spoken, they will also hear you. So in other words, Jesus is saying, just as the cross was my inevitable um, future in order to achieve the mission of rescuing the world, just as that was my future inevitably, if you follow me and if you participate in that same mission that I was involved in, then you're also going to have to suffer just like I did. It's part of the deal. It's part of the life that we're choosing. So in order to kind of understand uh, kind of the, the bigger picture of what he's getting at, I want to back up to the last... Uh, did I do it again? I didn't click through it. Oh, I, I missed one. Here we go. Okay. So I want to back up to the last uh, beatitude where he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Because I think it flows into what we're talking about right here. Uh, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, throughout, throughout time there's been a paradigm that the world has operated on, kind of an us versus them uh, paradigm where God loves us, God hates them. God's with us, whoever us is, and God is not with them, whoever they are. We're, we love us, we're kind of suspicious of them, right? If their interests start to impede upon ours or if, or if they inconvenience me in any way, then that, that distrust turns into hatred very quickly. And it's then our, quotes, our shared hatred of them that brings unity and peace among us. So we unite to go against a common enemy. We unite in our hatred of a co common enemy. And that brings a kind of peace among us because our focus is on those other people that we hate. It's a demonic way of unity, but it does achieve a type of unity, right? We achieve a kind of peace by uniting around a common enemy. But Jesus refuses to play that game. Throughout his life, throughout his teachings, he refused to play that game. He was, he was familiar with that paradigm. It was not, it's not like he came down from heaven and had blinders on and didn't see the things that were going on around him. He was very familiar with it. He grew up in Galilee, in northern Israel. He was a Galilean Jew. And... So, so the us for his society, for his people, would have been the Galilean Jews. The them for the people he grew up around would have been the Syrian Gentiles. Okay, The Syrian Gentiles were the them, the Galilean Jews were the us. But when Jesus preached his first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he did it in Galilee, surrounded by the people that were part of his social group. Okay, Surrounded by Galilean Jews. And when he starts preaching the sermon in Luke 4, it seems like his audience is going to really like what he, what he has to say, but then... Uh, as somebody told me one time, he went from pre he he, let, he stopped preaching and started meddling, right? He started challenging the things that that they operated their whole life based upon. Okay, he starts challenging this us versus them paradigm because he says here in verse twenty five he he starts to suggest that God maybe isn't just on our side. He says, think back to the prophet Elijah. There were many needy Jewish widows, those are the Galilean Jews right there. 
There were many needy Jewish widows in his homeland, Israel, when a terrible famine persisted there for three and a half years. Yet the only widow that God sent Elijah to help was an outsider from Zarephath and Sidon, a Syrian Gentile is what he's referring to there. That's a reference back to 1 Kings chapter 17. So he's reminding them of this story with Elijah, one of the great prophets of their history. They hung their hats on, on Elijah being, uh, being one of theirs. He's one of us. And Jesus suggests to them, you know, this whole idea that God's on our side and God is against them. And, and so therefore we're justified in our hatred and mistreatment of them. He says, you might want to rethink that because if you remember your, your, your great prophet Elijah, there were a lot of Jewish widows that, that were hungry uh, at that time. But who did he choose to help? Who did God, since he's a prophet, he's, he's operating on behalf of God. Who did God choose to help in that scenario? It was a Syrian Gentile. It was one of them that God chose to help. He says, not only that, he goes on in verse 27 and says, you want another example? Here it is. It was the same with the prophet Elisha. There were many Galilean Jews, there were many Jewish lepers in his homeland, but the only one that he healed, Naaman, was an outsider from Syria. So once again, Elijah and Elisha, both of these prophets, they had opportunities to help us, but for whatever reason, they chose to help them instead. So maybe there is no us in them. Maybe there's just us, and we need to... We need to get away from that paradigm. So Jesus refuses to achieve peace. He refuses to pursue unity based upon a common enemy, a common hatred of them, whoever them is. He, he won't play that game. So when he challenged that paradigm, when he challenged that us versus them paradigm, what happened? Keep reading there. I don't have it up on the screen, but you keep reading there. You find out that he broke up that peace among us, because he challenged the paradigm that they operated under, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. So immediately, that persecution enters the picture when he challenges the peace that they've achieved, which isn't really peace at all. So being a peacemaker, in the real sense, is what brought on that persecution. So living the Beatitudes leads to the life of God, leads to the divine life, but it also by definition, by its very nature, uh, leads to persecution. And it makes sense. And it kind of in the, in the flow of the Beatitudes, kind of the way they progress, I detach myself from all of these things that give me value, that give me prestige and power, all the possessions that, 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 that I value so much. And so I detach myself from those things and I embrace the mercy of God and purity and grace and all of these things. I, I fill myself up, self up with these things and open myself up to being transformed by God's love. And then I launch out into the world as one who's going to spread those things to other people. I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to spread God's mercy to others. And in that mission... When I'm going to spread grace and when I'm going to spread mercy, I need to go to the people that need grace and need mercy. So I'm going to be associating with the people who are vulnerable, with the people who are weak, with the people who are hurting, with the people who are needy and marginalized. That's who I'm going to go out there reaching out to when I'm living out the Beatitudes. And when I reach out to those people and stand among them to bring the mercy of God, guess what I can't avoid? Suffering along with them. If we're going to reach out to suffering populations, we can't avoid the possibility of suffering ourselves. If I go to a place where, where, where people are being shot and bombs are falling, 
because I want to share the grace and love of God with the people who are there and because I want to meet the needs that they have, I can't avoid the possibility of getting shot while I'm there. Who was the, the doctor that, that contracted Ebola? Uh, Brantley, Keith Brantley, something like that. I've, I've heard him speak uh, uh, at, a, at a conference I went to one time, and he talks very clearly. He knew when he decided to take on this mission work that there was a good chance he was going to contract a disease while he was there. He didn't know it was going to be Ebola, but when the Ebola virus started spreading, a lot of doctors that were involved in that same mission work left. He decided he was going to stay and transform his clinic that wasn't dealing with Ebola into an Ebola clinic. So he willingly made the choice to associate himself and to stand in the middle of all of these suffering people because he had an understanding that living the Jesus life called him into that association. And he contracted Ebola in the process. And it's by the grace of God and the science that was progressing that he's even alive today to tell his story. But you can't avoid that possibility. When you live the Jesus life, you can't avoid the possibility of suffering along with the people that you're reaching out to. So Jesus is basically saying, before you get on this train and follow me, I want you to think it through. I want you to think it through. Blessed are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word persecute, the Greek word dioko, primary meaning of that word is to pursue. Or it's kind of at the root of of that word. It kind of it brings up images of, of a chase with malevolent intent. Somebody's after you to do bad things to you. That's what persecution at its root is. And that's what the Pharisees did to Jesus all the time, right? They were constantly after him, asking him questions, trying to trap him. They didn't want to learn from him, but they would ask him a lot of questions because they, they wanted to find something they disagreed with him on. They wanted to trap him so that they could ruin his reputation or get him arrested and, and ultimately kill him. Every time Jesus turned around, there they were. They listened only to find fault with him. That's what persecution is. So when people are coming at you, forces, uh, structures, systems are coming at you um, because of your faith. Sometimes that persecution comes at you in violent ways. That's what it it did that for John the Baptist. It did it for Jesus. It did it for all of the apostles. It did it for most of the early Christians. Uh, It's always been a part of the Christian story that people are violently being persecuted. Um, And it still does today. We're insulated from it here because it's not our daily experience and it's not a lifetime experience for many of us, but it is a reality that every month, this is put out by Open Doors, which is an organization that uh, specifically focuses on persecution of Christians around the world. Every month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Every month. Every month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. And every month, 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. So we live over here in comfort land, while our brothers and sisters who are a part of the same mission, who have walked through that same gate to live the Jesus life, are enduring things that are violent and and, and terrible. And of course, you can, you know, with with the knowledge and and accounts that are at our fingertips with the internet now, you can find how horrible some of these things are if you, if you dare go down that path. And it's bad. But this beatitude, so there's, there's violent persecution, but this beatitude isn't limited to just violent forms of persecution, um, although it does include that, obviously. Rejection and ridicule for following Jesus, that's part of the picture too. You're going to be misunderstood. 
these are counterintuitive values, right? They're counterintuitive to us who are trying to live them out. So certainly they're going to be counterintuitive to the people who haven't even tried to walk through that gate yet. Right? They're counterintuitive. So people are going to misunderstand what we're doing. It's not going to make sense to them. So you'll be misunderstood. And then because you're misunderstood, you're, you're possibly going to be misrepresented and maligned because of it. It's always been that way. Anytime the kingdom of God is breaking in to a certain context, anytime God is showing himself in a significant way, there's going to be persecution. Um, think about, you know, you can bring to mind any of the great peacemakers uh, of, of our time. You think of MLK, we talked about him some, some last week. Mother Teresa has written a lot about the types of persecution that she and the, and the nuns that worked alongside her in Calcutta had to endure from, uh, from the people around them simply because they were willing to help the marginalized, the people who had no value in the eyes of society. You can go on and on. They all have stories of being persecuted or even killed. And it's just a part of the, it's part of the deal. It's part of what we're signing on to if we step out in this counterintuitive, countercultural way. Okay, so if we step into the most marginalized and broken places in the world, there's a very real possibility that we may suffer alongside those people. And Jesus is completely upfront about that. So with all the other Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are these people, here's the blessing that they'll receive, right? But with this one, he then expounds a little bit more. He goes on to say in verse 11, he says, and blessed are you when people persecute you or denigrate you or despise you or tell lies about you on my account. So he says, don't, don't expect everybody to be supportive of your decisions to follow the Jesus way. They're not going to. If you're looking for popularity, if you're looking for kudos, living like Jesus is probably not for you. But he says in verse 12, Rejoice, be glad. Remember that God's prophets have been persecuted in the past and know that in heaven you have a great reward. So God's prophets have been persecuted in the past. To be a prophetic person, when he talks about God's prophets, he's not just talking about people who could tell the future, right? That's kind of the popular notion of what a, what a prophet is. When he's talking about the prophets, he's talking about people that had a pro prophetic perspective on the present, on what's happening right now. And when you have a prophetic perspective on the present, you're always going to be persecuted because of it. Because prophecy, more than telling the future, sometimes telling the future by inspiration of God was what prophets did, but it was always in the context of speaking truth to power. Taking the systems and the people who are in power at that time, and speaking truth to them that sometimes that they don't want to hear, oftentimes truths that they don't want to hear. And anytime you do that, then it's a threat to the powerful. And persecution comes. People don't persecute other people for predicting the future. They persecute people for bringing a, a prophetic critique of the status quo. And when that status quo is what's giving them their power, then they don't like it. So that's the point here. Prophets get persecuted. Um, you know, if you go out today and if you, were to, if you were to challenge this us versus them paradigm, you say they are not the enemy. It's not just us against them. God doesn't favor us any more than he favors them. If you say that often enough and if you say that loud enough, you will get responses that border on or even cross the line into persecution. Because we don't like the feeling that we're not special in some, in some way in God's eyes. That we're not, we're not more valued in his eyes. 
We may be more in line with his mission, but, we may, but we're not more valuable in his eyes. But the first word, the first word that he says there in verse 12 is rejoice, be glad. That's an imperative. That's a command. In the entire Beatitudes, none of these are given as a command. None of them are imperative words. Um, But this one is. This is the first command really given in the Beatitudes. And it's the word rejoice. And the root word there even includes kind of the idea of leaping. So leap for joy. Now you talk about counterintuitive. He's talking about all this persecution. And then he says, leap for joy over this. And it's the first real command that he gives in the entire this entire portion of his sermon. He hasn't been commanding poverty of spirit. He hasn't been commanding mourning or meekness. Basically, with all the Beatitudes, he's been making announcements. He's saying, those of you who are poor in spirit, you are blessed. The kingdom of heaven is yours. He says, you that are mourning, you're blessed. Comfort is on the way. You that are meek, you are blessed. Because your, per- your portion in the, in the earth is, is guaranteed to you. He's making all these announcements, but now he makes a command. He says, leap for joy whenever you're persecuted. But it's not fun. So how do we leap for joy in the midst of it? Why should we rejoice? Because he says, great is your reward in heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is yours. This new thing that God is doing, this new system that is here because the old system was insufficient or was unfulfilled, This new system is what we're joining and it's bringing about a better world. And we're in great company with the prophets of old by joining in this. And while it might hurt some in the the here and now, we know that we're bringing about a better world that we will get to enjoy. We're building something for the world and for ourselves. A recreated, renewed, reborn reality that we can be a part of. So a few questions that I want you to think about over the next few days and, and discuss in your calm groups. First of all, do I, ca- do I count the cost of following Jesus or do I avoid suffering at all, costs, at all costs? There's a couple of passages to go along with that. Just a couple of, a portion of one of those I want to read to you. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25 says, If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself the things you think you want. You must pick up your cross and follow me. The person who wants to save his life must lose it, and she who loses her life for me will find it. Do I count the cost of following Jesus, or do I avoid suffering at all costs? Second one. Do I want to be close to Jesus, even in his suffering? Philippians 3, verse 10 says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So do you want to know Christ? It's easy to say yes to that. Think about what that means. Let's see. Number three. There we go. Do I regularly make decisions to obey Jesus that cost me? And then the last one. Do I want to be like Jesus? 1 John 4, 17 says, And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face Him with confidence because we live like Jesus 
here in this world. So he's talking about the day of judgment. He says we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus, because we've walked through this gate and we've lived this life that he's described to us. Not perfectly. You know, we understand none of us are perfect, but we've, made our, we've committed ourselves to living this life. And he says we can face him with confidence. And I don't know about you, but when I picture Judgment Day in my mind, I'm not picturing myself standing boldly and saying, yeah, we're good. You and me, we're all right. It's not, it's not quite that confident, but this is kind of, this is what he's describing here. You live this life, you can approach the, judgment, the, the, the throne on Judgment Day with confidence. So consider those things. Talk about them among your group. One thing I want to do, and I just added this just probably 10 minutes before we left the house today. There is, such a, there is such a good connection here to the things that are happening in our society around us that I, I, I feel like I'd be failing in my mission if I didn't mention just a couple of things very quickly. Sometimes it's, first of all, sometimes it's hard for us to distinguish between persecution and loss of power, loss of privilege for ourselves and for the group that we're a part of. And a lot of times people including Christians, will cry persecution when what's actually happening is the world around us is just rejecting the ways of Jesus in government and entertainment and culture. And we see that and it feels sometimes like, like persecution. Now, sometimes that rejection turns into malignment, violence, defamation of, of, of us and of people who are like us. And those, those things start to become persecution. But we should expect that. That's part of the deal. We should expect the ways of Jesus to be rejected. Um, there is reason to question. Uh, there, there can be a conversation about to what degree we have ever been really a Christian nation. There's, there's room on both sides to have that discussion. I'm not trying to get into that right now. But to whatever degree this ever was a Christian nation, it's pretty clear that the way Christianity, the, the hold on power of Christianity, the visible church, the, the, the people that are out, outwardly Christian, the, the, the grasp of power that those people have in our society is changing. And sometimes that feels, because that we, we, it feels like power slipping out of our hands. It feels like a loss of position in our society, and that feels bad. And sometimes we associate that as being persecution when it's really just the world saying we're not the same as the kingdom of God. So when you as an individual or one of the societal classes that you're a part of starts to hold less power, a lot of times it feels like persecution when it's actually merely a loss of privilege in society. And so you have to think carefully about what you're experiencing when you start to have those feelings. All right. The second thing I want to say, the New Testament says a whole lot about the likelihood of persecution and how we as followers of Jesus are supposed to handle persecution. But the New Testament says virtually nothing to dissuade, specifically dissuading Jesus' followers from being the persecutors. Why would it not say anything about that specifically? It now talks to us about being kind and valuing other people, but specifically talking about Christians as a group being the persecutors, it doesn't say anything about that. The reason for that is pretty simple because that wasn't even in the, within the scope of reasonable thought at that time for Jesus or his followers to ever expect that they would have a position in society where they even had the opportunity to persecute others. 
So it doesn't say a whole lot about that. But we know from looking at the life of Christ and we know from looking at the life of the apostles and the early church and all of these people that the world turns on us. We don't turn on the world, right? So may it never be said of us that we are actively or passively involved in the persecution of other people, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they believe or how they live. May that never be said of us as Christians. I had one slide up there that talked about the, the, the way the church suffers today and some statistics about how many Christians are being violently persecuted in the world around us. We didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that, but I want to close with a prayer on their behalf because we can't talk about persecution and we can't mention the fact that our brothers and sisters around the world are hurting deeply in ways that we can't, most of us can't imagine without bringing that need to the Father. So I'm going to close asking you to join me in a prayer for the persecuted church. God of the suffering and all who stagger under the weight of the cross of Christ, hear us as we seek to stand with those persecuted for being Christians. Your cross bearers in other lands are living reminders to us of the cost of discipleship. While we are at ease in Zion, they are in an exile of pain and isolation. While we are feasting on the good things around us, they keep an involuntary fast. While we assume a future of well-being, they don't know if they'll be alive tomorrow. While we wear the cross as a piece of jewelry, they bear it as an invitation to abuse, exclusion, imprisonment, even death. Turn our hearts to them in prayer and in acts of compassion and justice. Thank you for breathing in them and in us the yearning for sharing one another's burdens. Loose their shackles and loose our complacency. Bind the forces of abuse and violence at work in their persecutors. And in the silence, pray, our, pray your mercy in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.